everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is episode 20 for Wednesday, February 24th, 2009. Once again, I'm Paul Fox, and joining me as always is my good friend, Kevin Ma. Hi, everybody. So, Kevin, how you doing? I'm good. Yeah, Busy. Nice, ni- nice yeah. holiday. Getting back to work. Yeah, well, I was working over the holiday, so not much of a holiday. How about you, Paul? Not bad, not bad. I still haven't opened my little red packets yet. I, uh, my better half says we have to wait until the 15th day or something for good luck. So. Oh, no, I think I've spent them all. <laughs> right. All right, so well, we've got some news to talk about this week. And uh, before we get to that, uh, we've both got a couple of websites that we'd like to plug. I'd like to... Uh, direct everybody's attention if you're not already aware of it, um, but if you're an Asian cinema fan, you probably are, to the podcast called Podcast on Fire, um, coming out of Europe, UK area. And last week or two weeks ago, uh, the guys did an episode that was focused around True Legend. And I just want to sort of direct everybody's attention, if you're not aware about this show, to that episode, because it was a really good episode. They did have an interview with uh, somebody who worked on the film. But before they got to the interview, they actually had some pretty in-depth, in-depth discussion about the character of Master Su, who's the focus of the film. And they looked at the many different roles that had, you know, had been focusing on this character over the years, including Stephen Chow's famous portrayal, um, some of the portrayals that have been in some TVB dramas and whatnot. So if you're really interested in the character, they have a really good discussion uh, centered around the character. So if you're thinking about seeing the film, but you don't have access to it, but you want to get primed up with some other material, I'd say take a listen to that podcast. I believe it's episode 68, and they can give you it'll give you a lot more background into the character of Master Sue. Kevin, you have a website you also want to plug? Yes, um, I was supposed to mention this last week, but um, Stephen Kremlin, the Taiwan correspondent of Screen Daily, and Patrick Frader, the... Um, former editor of Variety Asia, they've started a Film Asia uh, website, news website called Film Business Asia. Um, They update pretty frequently, uh, essentially what my blog um, used to do and hope to do one day again, which is uh, compile a lot of Asian cinema news and put them on one site. Um, It's a very, very useful site for anyone that wants to follow Asian cinema because um, they both have a really extensive, extensive experience in Asian cinema and they really are some of the best authorities on the topic. So if you want to check out uh, the latest news from Asia Entertainment, uh, check out www.filmbiz, that's F-I-L-M-B-I-Z dot Asia, A-S-I-A, A-S-I-A. All right. We'll look forward to seeing some good news and some interesting articles coming from them. On to a bit of news that we'll talk about this week um, for our, amongst ourselves. Uh, first, a little bit of big news for regarding Hong Kong film uh, centered around the Berlin Festival. Uh, Kevin, you want to give us a little bit of a heads up on some of the news coming out of Berlin? Yes. Um, Asian cinema played quite a big role this year at the Berlin Film Festival. Uh, that included screenings for things like uh, Jackie Chan's latest film, a um, couple of Japanese films, uh, including one of them in competition. Uh, one Hong Kong film was in one of the, I wouldn't say minor, but not the main category, was in the Generations category. Uh, Alex Law's um, Echoes of the Rainbow, starring Simon Yam and Sandra Ng. That film won the uh, Crystal Bear uh, for the Best Feature Film in its category. Um, I've seen the film. 
uh, I saw it at a screening in December in order to get qualified for the Hong Kong Film Awards. And the film is a very nostalgic look of uh, Hong Kong neighborhoods in the 60s. Um, it's a pseudo-autobiographical film. And um, it's uh, quite a gentle film. It's very enjoyable. And I was quite surprised that a film of this, I guess, caliber, which is a very sort of lighthearted family story, uh, could win at an international competition like this. But uh, good for Alex Law and Mabel Chun. Um, they haven't made a film for in quite a while, so it's good to see a truly Hong Kong film uh, win big at international awards. So do you think that this is going to be a big contender in the Hong Kong Film Awards now that it's getting some international recognition? Well, it's gotten quite a few nominations, I think six, but the most embarrassing thing is that it didn't get a Best Film nomination. So I'm sure the Hong Kong Film Awards uh, committee is kind of kicking themselves for nominating other movies instead of this one. Um, but on the other hand, honestly, I didn't enjoy the film as much as I would say the other nominees, um, maybe except for Shinjuku Incident. Um, like I said, it's very kind of lightweight and it has its flaws. It is very enjoyable, but I wouldn't say it's very award bait movie. So, but uh, yeah, definitely, it comes out in Hong Kong on March 11th. Hopefully, um, it'll it it's earned some uh, steam or some buzz for box office because um, this is one of those underdog films that you know when it comes out, it's not gonna attract a very big audience. Um, so hopefully, it'll do it'll be good for the box office. Yeah. All right. Well, this um this little bit of news has also been generating a little bit of buzz locally because. Uh, these films doing well overseas, getting some international recognition, have started to um, send some people to rethink the way that arts are and arts promotion are being done in Hong Kong, particularly uh, with the West Kowloon development project that's been going on. Um, but a little bit before that, there was a bit of news with regard to the Movies Fund. Uh, that's a fund that's set up locally by the government, and it helps independent filmmakers sort of do some film development is is am I correct in that, Kevin? Well, it's supposed to nurture new filmmakers, but the thing is, the Hong Kong government is very uh, commercially minded of this fund, which means that um, the producers or the director would have to have made I think two films already before two feature films before they get the funding, and they also um, have a have a ceiling on the budget of the film, and also a certain amount, only a certain percentage of the budget will be provided. Provided also also on the condition that the government would get back that same number that same percentage of the box office take. Yeah. So in in a way, it's supposed to help, but there's a lot of lot of restriction that the film industry people all agree that it's actually hindering the what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So do you think that now that some of these smaller films are getting some recognition, that the government is going to sort of free up some of the restrictions or put in some more money? I think this only proves that um, they need experienced filmmakers to do the fund because um, filmmakers that have so far gotten the fund, including Ivy Ho, which is Hong Kong's only million-dollar screenwriter, uh, Alex Law and Mabel Chern, who's made quite a few films since the 70s, um, Madou, the, th the third Madou movie, and you know th these kind of commercial films, you wonder if they really need the Hong Kong Film Fund. It's really new filmmakers, young filmmakers that need this sort of funding. And it's kind of a catch-22, too, because if if they're saying that the quota for getting this uh, the access to this fund is making two films, well, you've already, I mean, if you've already made two films, you've already got some connections in terms of 
getting funding and getting some production. So then why would you want to turn to the government? Exactly. Exactly. And also the, the, the budget ceiling is quite tough because right now they're trying to target towards the mid to low budget film. So they set their ceiling at 12 million Hong Kong dollars, which is right where um, echoes of the, of the rainbow is. Mm. They had to build an entire new, they had to build a set on an existing street. So you could see why it costs $12 million. Of course, last month they just upped the ceiling to $15 million, but the, the other um, restrictions, including the, the government taking back part of the box office, that, that still applies. All right, our next bit of news um, is about Sammo Hung's son, son uh, Jimmy Hung. And his, he's got a film company in Taiwan uh, with, uh, I believe it's, is it Vanis Wu, Kevin? Vanis Wu, Vanis yeah, Wu, the XF4 yeah. member. Yeah, yeah and uh, so apparently their production company over in Taiwan is uh, under a little bit of uh, police, uh, police observation, I guess. They've been raided or something like that. Um, according to the news, uh, drugs are involved. And, you know, I, I was joking with Kevin before we started recording that, you know, here, I, as I was reading this article, I'm thinking, wow, they're talking about drugs and film. They must have gone in and gotten like, you know, 20 grams of cocaine or something. And it just turns out that it's like they just seized like a, a bag of marijuana or something. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, really? Seriously, guys? I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're making a big deal about this um but you know I, drugs are a serious business i mean it wasn't that long ago um they had a couple local artists who got detained in japan isn't that right yes it was uh calvin kwan uh and what's her name uh joe vidal yes yeah yeah um that's janice's sister right yes yeah. uh, and also uh leon lies protege yeah and so they were they i mean they were caught uh with the weed was it the weed they were caught with or was it k Oh, I think it was um, it was weed, and then they found some crack cocaine with Jill. Oh, okay, even. yeah. So th- yeah, that's a bit more serious. serious. That's a bit more yeah. serious. And then I think there was like a local um, girl who was trying to become a Langmo or something, and they said they caught her in like the school bathroom trying to hide <laughs> some stuff. I mean, so drugs is a big issue in Hong Kong. It's been talked about all throughout the news um, in the past years. Like every other week, you see a news story about kids and rehab schools and, and drugs and what should be done. Um, but, you know, I just, I, I looked at this story and I was thinking, you know, come on. I mean, <laughs> if you go to a Grateful Dead concert, you're going to find a whole lot more weed than what they found here. But um, I guess Taiwan, they take these things pretty seriously. So uh, from what the article said that um, Jimmy Hong uh, was not, is not claiming any direct responsibility. It's apparently some people on the staff or something and he's not really aware of it so uh but you know as with news stories they put his name you know up in big actually they put samo's name up there because it's samo's son samo's <laughs> got a bigger title it's like samo hung's son in trouble production company in trouble for you know drugs and it's like what and then you read it and it's like oh come on so i don't know what, what do you could, what do you think about samo's this weed it's for you know well hey it's come on it's for it's for medicinal purposes right i mean <laughs> maybe that's why i didn't do any action since you 14 blades well, no, so, you've, you've heard of you've heard of drunken master he's doing the next best thing you know it's like uh you know it's like cheech and chong meet kung fu or something like that drunken master yeah. <laughs> crunken fist yeah all right our last little bit of news um Coming from the States, Maggie Q has been selected as the lead role for the television version of La Femme Nikita. Um, 
Kevin, what do you think about this? Um, well, good for I mean, this is the uh, fourth time they um, brought the fan franchise. Uh, I believe the first time was a French film. The second one was Bridget Fonda in the film remake. And the third time was, uh, I believe, a cable TV show. So finally, the film Nikita makes its way into a uh, fourth tier TV network on Ameri- in American Yeah, so TV. this is going to be on the CW. Yes. Yeah, the if, for those of you listening out there abroad who may not be familiar with U.S. TV networks, this is like the bottom rung of of TV. This is like so far up. I think it's the UHF channel. You know, it's like <laughs> when I go back home and visit my parents, I try and watch programs on the CW, and all I get is like half snow because the signal reception is so poor. But um, CW, a very yeah, very healthy C- program for our teenagers. CW is not known for. Um, really great pro- programming, but are they running? Are, are they? Did they pick up like Smallville? I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they have a lot of the uh, UPN and the OWB shows. Yeah, they, they, and they, they did a, pick up a, a couple good, long-lasting shows. I think Smallville's like in its ninth season, so I mean that's yeah. been alive and kicking for some time. But and of um, course, uh, Gossip Girl. Uh, oh yeah, that's I'm a sure classic. Watch that. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Actually, I can't say that too loudly because. <laughs> <laughs> Gia does watch that, and she always wants to know when new episodes are coming. Um, so yeah, we can look forward to uh, Maggie Q, and uh, maybe when she gets finished on production, we'll see her in uh, Three Kingdoms Two or something. I don't know. Rocking out with that with the peepa yeah. again. Can't the, wait. The, the, the nine 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 fingered deadly peepa. Yeah. Well, that's going to wrap things up for news. Now let's talk about some movies. So for this week on East Screen, we're focusing on the new film Hot Summer Days. Um, Kevin, why don't you give us an introduction to this film and uh, some of your thoughts on it? Sure. Uh, Hot Summer Days um, could be the most appropriate release in Lunar New Year film history because it's a film about a gigantic heat wave sweeping China during the coldest period of the year. Um, it's another ensemble romance, kind of in the line of uh, Love Actually and last year's Love Connected, except this one is much better. It's directed by Wing Shia, a very famous photographer, and um, Tony Chan, who uh, started out in uh, independent films in America and apparently has been trying to get this film off the ground in ten for 10 years or so now. Uh, this is kind of a big profile movie because this is 20th Century Fox's first attempt at a Chinese language film. So it's kind of weird to see the 20th Century Fox logo at the beginning of the film. I remember us uh, whispering over to Paul and says, wait, I thought we were watching, I we were watching Hot Summer Days. What is Avatar? Um, so Hot Summer Days uh, stars some of the prettiest people in uh, Hong Kong and Chinese entertainment. Um, except Jackie Chan. Um, Jackie Chan here stars as... Um, a car driver, a driver for a pop star who um, suffers a heat stroke and starts uh, 
sort of SMS romance with a uh, Renee Liu, who is a pianist um, in Shenzhen. Except she can't get a job as a pianist, so she's a foot masseuse for now. And uh, also, meanwhile, um, also in Hong Kong, we have uh, Nicholas Se playing uh, air conditioner repairman who will be making a lot of money uh, in this heat wave. Um, he one night he chases down a girl on a motorcycle played by Barbie Xu, who uh, was almost unrecognizable with the new haircut and lots of tattoos and also speaking in Cantonese the whole time, which is kind of good because, you know, she's Taiwanese and she was last in love, con uh, sorry, in Connected, where she spoke complete Mandarin. So it's good to see her uh, stretching a bit, at least language wise. Um, also, we have Daniel Wu playing a sushi chef um, with Vivian Su, who is uh, a foodie writer who travels all the world. Um, to find the perfect meal and realizes the best meal is where Daniel Wu is. Um, and I think the best story of all of them uh, takes place in a small town in China uh, where Angela Baby uh, plays a factory girl who is being uh, pursued by a young village boy who promises to stand in front of a factory at noon for 100 days in order to get her heart. And also the last story, and I think it's the worst story, is about a Chinese photographer who goes blind after being uh, cursed by a model and has to go with his young assistant to Shenzhen to look for the model in order to cure his curse. Um, being this, being this, um, this being a uh, first film of a very famous photographer, uh, Hot Summer Days looks very polished, uh, looks very, very pretty. Um, it's shot on film, but there's a sort of a polish on it that sort of reminds you of a Hollywood film. That it, it almost looks nothing like the usual um, quickly produced Hong Kong film, um, which makes it really easy to ignore the, the flaws in the storytelling because some of them use really bad melodramatic cliche and there's some kind of cringe-inducing dialogue that, you know, I guess comes to the territory of a romantic comedy. Um, and I think like a review that I wrote that was going to be on Love HK film soon is, is very much like a Hollywood romantic film. So if you could ignore essentially the flaws that you usually see in Hollywood romantic films, I think you could do the same here and still have a good time. I've seen the film twice now and it really actually still works uh, on the second time because the whole movie is so predictable that you're just kind of having fun along with the, what, what's going on. You don't really have to guess what's going to happen because you, you know what's going to happen. And um, I think actually it kind of worked for it. Yeah. So what do you think, Paul, about the film? Well, uh, I liked it. Uh, I, I liked it a lot, in fact. Um, it, it, as I was mentioning last week when we were watching it, it's ironic that we're watching this film, you know, about this really hot period, you know, in the summer. And, and it's actually one of Hong Kong's coldest periods ever, <laughs> you know, because we were all freezing. <laughs> Uh, last week was was you know really, we had really cold temperatures for Hong Kong and so here we are sitting in the movie theater with jackets on and everything and and you know we're seeing people glistening with you know sweat everybody's covered in in like studio makeup glycerin to make them look sweaty almost almost too much it was almost too much to take because there was just so much yeah. glycerin covering on, on the sweaty bodies it was like yeah. all right and uh, we we get it it's hot okay we we understand. <laughs> Even um, like fancy hotels, people be sweating. Just, yeah, it's like everybody, everybody's air con, air, air conditioner was broken down, and you know people were just dripping. And in, in some cases, it was like they were. I was reminded of um, 
an old scene in Airplane. I think it was the original Airplane, <laughs> where I think it was the the character Robert Mays, the actor Robert Mays, was like sitting at the wheel, and he was like so nervous that he starts like sweating, and then it's just like a water faucet <laughs> running over the top of his head. It was just so over the top, and at, at a few moments, I'm thinking. You know, okay, come on. I mean, how many, how, how many of these people do we need to see actually drenched and drip, dripping with sweat? Um, <laughs> but no, I think I think that it was it was very visually stunning for the, the production values or that were there, and and I can I really like it when they pay attention to details like that. Um, I liked the audio production on this as well. The fact that um, you know the sound came across as as really nice, with one exception, and I'll talk about that. Um, the stories, I'm not a big fan of anthologies in part because I can never really, I, I never really feel invested in any of the characters that much. And usually there are one or two stories that I, I end up not caring about and not liking and just wishing they weren't part of the anthology at all. And more time was given to some of the other characters. And I, I ended up feeling that way here. Um, you know, I ended up really liking Jackie Chung's story. As I mentioned last week, I'm a, yeah. I, I, you know, I just like him on screen. Um, but even his story, I mean, it was nothing that you haven't seen in, you know, Sleepless in Seattle or a dozen other films, um, or something like You've Got Mail, where people are, you know, um, separated by some kind of mediated device, and they're connecting via letters or emails, or in this case, SMS. Um, and so you know that ultimately, they're going to have to come to that moment where they actually meet and they find out what's true and what's not about each other. Um, but you know, I I enjoyed that story. I enjoy you know, especially the you know the relationship that he was having with his daughter. I thought mm -hmm. that that was portrayed well. Um, but yeah, this is a story, a series of stories that uh, some take place in Hong Kong, some take place in in mainland China. A couple you know jump back and forth across the border. That was kind of nice. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's like the the story with uh, Angela Baby and uh, uh, is it Jin Bo Ran? Yes. Who, who played the young guy who, you know, she asked to stand outside in the sun at lunchtime for 100 days. Mm -hmm. You know, she's doing a thing where she's folding little stars and keeping them in the jar, you know, one for each day kind of thing. You know, we've seen we've seen these kind of gimmicks before. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there, the there's a very there's some very short scenes with uh, Jan Lam doing a voice of an animated fish. You know, it's kind of reminiscent of like Finding Nemo or something, but I, I thought it was it was very well done. Uh, I, I wasn't expecting to see something like that. Um, mm -hmm. We got a nice surprise seeing Gordon Liu uh, playing uh, a, a very small, minor role, but um, I felt it was very significant. It came into play towards the end. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and again, you know, some of the stories I could have done without. I'm not a huge fan of Vivian Su. Her pairing with Daniel Wu didn't really work for me. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't really like that story. If I was going to cut out one story, for me, it would have been that. The photographer story I thought was okay, but um, if I had to get rid of one, it would have been uh, Daniel Wu's story. Um, I think a lot of these stories really depend on how the actors perform. And honestly, Vivian Su was doing the most kind of over-the-top acting especially when she was by herself yeah. and same for the photographers just the the character the actors make their characters so unlikable that that i didn't 
it, it the, all the flaws kind of jumped out at me. Unlike Jackie Chan's story, where yeah, the the story's not really original and and it has a lot of cliche and it's not really that well done. The actress is so likable that I really like those story, and yeah, including yeah. Angela Babies. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And Angela Baby, I mean, I, one of our other groupmates was saying this. Um, she has turned out to be really surprising in terms yeah. of some of the roles she's been doing. Um, you know, with a name like Angela Baby, you wouldn't be expecting much depth in terms of acting or performance, but she is really, you know, pulling some good stuff uh, out of her past few roles. The one thing, the one thing I was mentioning before about the sound um, is the music in this in this film. It's got sort of this mm. Euro jazz um, Latin kind of torch singer kind of you know music going on in some places, and it just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, if ever there was a a, a time where I wanted some Mandarin pop or some Canto pop, I think there were a couple of moments in this film where I was expecting for a Jackie Chung song or a Nick Tse song to sort of come on and fill the moment and instead we were getting you know this euro jazz stuff that just you know it, and it was always being done when they were doing sort of montage shots of various places in hong kong it just didn't really seem to to fit the mood for me um yeah and actually i like the i like the summary kind of latin music that i felt really fit the mood unlike you know say some really bombastic there were there was some instrumental music that was kind of nice but there was some vocals right. some actual like your Euro jazz songs that had vocals to them that I just oh yeah 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 those are terrible yeah they they those didn't work for me um and then the 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 one thing there you know I I don't really want to uh, I don't want to give a spoiler out but uh, there's a cameo appearance by someone in the film and it's just totally overdone it it, <laughs> it really doesn't match the the tempo and the pacing and the feel of the film it's it's like whoa where did that come from. <laughs> and, and and why was that here? And I, I don't want to say who the cameo is by. Um, I'll just leave that as a as a bit of a surprise. But once that cameos arrive, it like just totally changes the weight and feel of the film for that scene, and then it, it's it's just gone a moment later. So it was kind of odd seeing that. But overall, uh, I did enjoy the film. Um, it you know I'd have to say. It was definitely up there with the films we saw last week, um, House of 72 Tenants, or, or 72 Tenants of Prosperity, um, All's Well That Ends Well 2. You know, I probably liked it a little bit more than All's Well Ends Well 2, uh, 2010. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast, the best from the East and the rest from the West. It's time to move on to some West Screen films uh, this week. Kevin is going to talk with us about Valentine's Day, and since we've just passed Valentine's Day, uh, he should be very much in the mood to talk about this film. <laughs> oh, I get all the anthology films, so this is going to be tough. <laughs> um, anthology films, yes. Uh, Valentine's Day is another uh, ensemble romance. Uh, this time is from America. Um, after last year's He's Just Not That Into You, um, Warner Brothers decided to re repeat their success. With this huge uh, extravaganzas of stars that you would never pay to watch if they were by themselves, but you would pay to watch if they were together in one movie. So here it is, twenty-one of them in ten stories. Uh, it's directed by Gary Marshall, who did um, Princess Diaries and also Pretty Woman. Um, and it looks, and again, it's uh, the sunny LA uh, setting that that made Pretty Woman partly such a success. So. This one would guarantee to look at least as pretty, if not as charming. Uh, like I said, there's 10 stories here, so I'll just kind of go over uh, a few of them. 
the main sort of central plot um, stars Ashton Kutcher as a flower shop owner. Um, <clears throat> he proposes to his girlfriend, uh, played by Jessica Alba, that morning. Uh, she says yes. And then so he spends the rest of the day telling uh, everyone, including his best friend, played by Jennifer Gardner, who is in a relationship with a doctor who has a secret. Um, and that doctor is by Patrick Dempsey, which I'm sure is kind of a intentional casting considering his role on Grey's Anatomy. Uh, also working in his shop is a comedian, George Lopez, who is spending the day delivering flowers because it is Valentine's Day. So he has a quite a busy day ahead of him. Um, who else do we have? Let me think. Uh, we have uh, Julia Roberts, um, kind of independent by them by herself, sitting away from everything that's going on. Uh, she's on a plane on the way back to LA. She plays a, a soldier on her way home. And she's sitting next to Bradley Cooper, who had a star turn on a, at, in the hungover, in the hangover. Um, and, the, and their story is just having to do with them talking on the plane about various things. Uh, also, we have Anne Hathaway, uh, who is sort of getting into a new relationship with uh, Topher Grace, who was in That 70s Show. But what she isn't telling him is that she is working part-time as a sex, sex line operator. Uh, so we got all these kind of inter intersecting plots and everyone would meet and there's uh, a lot of the word Valentine's getting passed around a lot. But the thing is, there's so many people, so many plot is that like Paul was saying uh, earlier about hot summer days, that, that they don't really leave an impression. You wish that some of the plots would go away. So then you have more time for the ones you like. And, and those, and Gary Marshall just puts everything in here. The movie lasts about two hours, but it, it, it feels a lot longer because so much things going on, so many plots to jump around. Um, and it's the, the characters are two dimensional. They're, they're all based on their likability as, as, you know, as actors, as celebrities, not their characters. And also, um, you have really, from really good acting, which I think um, Ashton Kutcher actually does really good in this film. Uh, Jennifer Garner plays a little bit older than, or she's playing, she's a little too over her role, but she's still very good. Anne Hathaway, again, quite charming, um, because I guess it's the third time she's worked with Gary Marshall's show, so they're quite, uh, they're quite, I guess, good at working each other with each other but the worst acting comes from the two tailors in the film Tar taylor notner um of twilight is in kind of his own insignificant subplot with uh pop singer taylor swift and taylor swift sort of plays this valley girl thing except she does it totally blank face and i think the two tailors will both and of course taylor notner carries his edison chen with the crooked mouth thing here again. So um, their plot has no significance on any of the other plots. And I think that one could be easily thrown away, but I think they're trying to get more sort of young audience in the seats. And uh, yeah, that's, that's why uh, even actually the older actors kind of disappointed me because um, Hector Elizondo, um, kind of a character actor. Uh, I was in a lot of American films. He's uh, here with a love story with a uh, veteran actress, Shirley MacLaine, but even their ending, and they start off, you know, they play this um, old couple and they get along really well. But, of course, there's some secret revealed and that threatens to tear the relationship apart. And they're good up to that point. But the resolution of that story is just sort of embarrassing. You, you feel sort of embarrassed for these two actors and how they resolve that, um, resolve the, the plot. Um, overall, I guess it's kind of enjoyable for two hours, but 
ultimately it's just you feel that it's out to make your money if you feel like they're trying to up they're trying to amp this idea of valentine's day they're playing it's, it's totally um it's totally commercial programming is totally geared towards people who go to the movies it's so calculated and and honestly it's they're not even all that subtle about it anymore um at one point there's a really obvious um product placement for for a, a certain brand of perfume and it just sort of stands out there right in the middle of the screen and that, that kind of tells you what kind of a product this is it's really not a film it's really just products and um you know enjoyable for two hours but once you kind of think about what's behind it or, or the calculation behind it what it's there for it's really not not that not that good of a film honestly it's not that good of a film it's not that good of a uh promotional pro it's not that good of a commercial it's just ultimately it's, it's a waste of having all these stars in the film well how is it as a as sort of a holiday event do you think this will be something that has any staying power that people will turn to every Valentine's Day is, you know, something they watch, like It's a Wonderful Life or something? No, because some of the plots are nearly good enough to do with it. Like, there are some plots, like I said, there's some plots that really have no significance at all. This, they're there because the stars are there more than because they actually earn their right to be in the stories. I think, like I said, this is a calculation to cram as many stars into this film as possible, have them show up for a few days so you can keep the budget down, and that's that's what it comes out. None of the stars really make much of an impression unless they're famous already. So it's really kind of a, I guess it's a founding republic of the CW level stars, except we have a couple of <laughs> higher level ones like Julia Roberts, who really actually does nothing. She's actually she only spends the movie on three different places. I think she probably did her scenes in like three days, and and that's the only way the studio can make money of all these people in the film: keep them as on as little time as possible, and then pay them as little as possible. Valentine's Day. Charlie Brown, we've been feeling awfully guilty about not giving you a Valentine this year. Here, I've erased my name from this one. I'd like you to have it. Hold on there. What do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? Where were you yesterday when everyone else was giving out Valentines? Is kindness and thoughtfulness something you can make retroactive? Don't you think he has any feelings? You and your friends are the most thoughtless bunch I've ever known. You don't care anything about Charlie Brown. You just hate to feel guilty. And now you have the nerve to come around one day later and offer him a used valentine just to ease your conscience. Well, let me tell you something. Charlie Brown doesn't need your... Don't listen to him. I'll take it. All right. Well, our next movie for West Green this week is Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. Uh, this is a film directed by Chris Columbus and is coming from uh, the book series, which was written, written by Rick Riordan, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, now, Kevin, you haven't had a chance to get out and see The Lightning Thief, have you? No, I'm just so burnt out from other movies yeah, um, yeah. a couple of weeks. So. Well, I'll give you a brief synopsis. So The Lightning Thief is about the, main, the central character of Percy Jackson, who is played by uh, young actor Logan Lerman, and who seems to be an up-and-comer. It looks like he'll be set to appear in the reboot of Spider-Man as Peter Parker. Uh, this, at least according to IMDb currently. 
Um, he's been in a couple other other films before, no, most notably Gamer, uh, 310 to Yuma, uh, The Butterfly Effect. So he's not really a newcomer, but uh, this was the first film that I've I've seen him in. And he's playing Percy Jackson, who has a problem. Uh, it seems that he doesn't relate well to others. Um, he's coming from a bit of a broken family, and he's not doing very well at school. And he finds out that he's got special powers. Sound familiar? Well, it should, because it's directed, as I said, by Chris Columbus, who did the first two Harry Potter films. And ultimately, what you have is a Harry, Bo Harry Potter sort of remake with some Greek mythology thrown in. Because as it turns out, Percy Jackson is the son or the half-son of Poseidon, making him a demigod. And he, as he uncovers this, he finds out that there are many people around him uh, who are who have known about him and have been trying to protect him and keep this secret. Um, but once the secret is revealed, he is in turn being hunted by other Greek mythological creatures being that have been sent after him by Zeus and the other gods because they think he has stolen Zeus's lightning. And so hilarity ensues, or <laughs> so I would have hoped. Um, but ultimately, yeah, this is basically very formulaic. Um, you have young kid, special powers, turns out to be extraordinary, uh, has to go on a quest to uncover something to, um, he has a couple friends who join along. And, and again, it's, it's very much that Harry Potter formula. Um, he has to go to, you know, Harry Potter had to go to uh, a special wizarding school to learn to control his abilities. And Percy Jackson has to go to hero camp. Um, you know, except at hero camp, instead of learning spells, they dress up like Spartans and run around and play capture the flag. Um, yeah, and that's about that. That's what we have. Throw in a couple scenes that are making some riffs on Clash of the Titans and some of the other Greek myths, and you know that's basically what you get with Percy Jackson. Unfortunately, I was very disappointed because I'm a huge fan of Greek mythology, but what's being presented here is nowhere near as polished in terms of production value or cinematography as anything you'd see in any of the Harry Potter films. Um, and I don't say that to, to be a Harry Potter fanboy in, in any way, shape, or form, because I love Greek mythology, and I was really hoping this was going to be uh, very, very fun and very, very interesting. And ultimately, uh, it just wasn't. Um, the, there, the performances, you have a couple people standing out. There's Pierce Brosnan, who's retired from James Bond, but he's taking up a, a role here. Um, Uma Thurman makes an appearance playing Medusa, but everything that you would expect to happen, you know, with these characters sort of does happen. And in one instance, you know, you have the, you have the, you have Percy and, uh, his two companions who go along, uh, which are the equivalent of a Ron and a Hermione, basically, um, they, they, you have them coming along to, you know, overcome certain obstacles because, uh, they have to get certain things to, try to make their way down to, to Hades and ultimately try and um, help get Percy's mother back because she's been kidnapped. Uh, and Hades, because Hades wants, you know, the lightning and everybody thinks that Percy has it. Um, so you've got the traditional rivalry amongst the three brothers, um, Poseidon, Zeus, and Hades going on here, but we never really get to see much of that. Um, it's basically just the kids running around different locations in the United States 
course, everything <laughs> is in the United States. They don't have to go <laughs> over to Greece for, to find anything, you know, home of where, where, you know, the Olympians should be at. Everything's very much centralized, right? They're conveniently in the U.S. of A. And, of course, there's no real context as to what have the gods been doing all this time? You know, how come they're not ticked off that everybody's, you know, going following these other religions these days? And, and, and you know, why, why are they not surprised at the way society has de developed and these types of things? They just, there's just so much that's sort of overlooked. And perhaps these things are um, fe featured in the books, but they certainly weren't the focus of any part of the movie. Um, and so, yeah, you don't really get, get a whole lot in terms of visuals. <laughs> Uh, that's really exciting or, or, or really new in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, again, the, the, the interesting thing was there were a couple scenes where they're going along and, and the kids would say, oh, well, I, I know where this thing is or, or, or I know about this thing. But then the stuff that should be obvious, right, especially when you're dealing with Greek mythology, the things that you think would be obvious are totally overlooked. So there, the kids, for example, are walking in to find this first object that they need to get. And where do they find themselves but in, in this sort of garden area with lots and lots of very realistic-looking statues? <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, the minute you would see statues, you'd think, oh, people turn to stone. These guys look really real. There must be a Medusa around here, right? But no, they, you know, they're just clueless when it comes to these types of things. So <laughs> it's just, it's, unfortunately, it's a lot of nonsense. I do think kids would like it. I think if you've got kids maybe under the age of 14 or so, um, if, if they've never seen the original Clash of the Titans and you think that maybe the new Clash of the Titans when it comes out will be a little bit too violent or a little bit too adult for them, this might be fun. But I think for adults, uh, some of the jokes, some of the adult humor they try and go for is kind of tired and just not very funny. The action is not very engaging. So I'd say if you've got a couple young ones, eh, you, you know, it might be good for a matinee. But there's really not much there for anybody who knows anything about Greek mythology or is looking for a smart film uh, like we've seen in the Harry Potter series. All right, well, that's going to wrap things up for this week. We are not going to be doing any video picks this week, but we hope to... Uh, be doing some video picks for you on our next show. Um, this is our 20th episode. I guess that's some kind of a record somewhere for us. 20th times the charm. Yeah, yeah I mean, for for me and Kevin to do 20 of anything, that's got to be, you know, <laughs> that's got to be a record somehow. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we hope to have many more shows. Um, and next week, what what will we be talking about next week? Do you think, Kevin? Next week, we talk about the new Jackie Chan film, Little Big Soldier, and if we can find a theater that's playing it, we'll be watching the new Alan Tam New, new Year film, uh, Fortune Comes to Town. And hopefully, we can talk about Musical 9 and also uh, Up in the Air. All right. So it looks like we'll have quite a few things to talk about on our next episode. Until then, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you next time. See you next week, everybody. Oh, the one thing I forgot to ask was, um, isn't uh, Black Cat also a, a version of La Femme Nikita, technically? Yes, yes, it is, actually. Yeah.
I, I, forgot, yeah. I forgot. I was thinking about that when you were talking about the different variations, and then I just it just went in one ear brain cell and left the other brain cell, and I totally forgot about it. Well, it's not an official. Uh, it's not an official version, so it's okay. It's the Hong Kong knockoff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes the Hong Kong knockoffs are better than the real thing. <laughs> At least that's what the guys who are trying to sell me Rolexes on every corner tell me, right? <laughs> Um, I just, you know, if I ever met her, you know, in person, I'm not sure what I would call her Miss Baby or, <laughs> you know, I, how do you, how do you work with that? You know, Miss Baby, please come to the set. You know, it's time Yo, for your, a, it's time for a, your close up, Miss Baby, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> I, that's a street name, A-B, yo, yeah. A-B. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, as a Samo and Kumar go to White Castle or whatever the Hong Kong equivalent is going to be. <laughs> Yeah, I pay for it. Samuel Kumar, Samuel Kumar goes to Cafe de Corral. Yes. <laughs>